Isn't that beautiful? It's very, very cool. I'll, I'll tell you, I, uh, I know nothing about pampering or prom dresses, um, but, but I do know the love of Christ when I see it, and that is an incredible, incredible event. Uh, and we're so grateful for our partners in James Storehouse and how we get to partner uh, and really be a part of these girls' lives and, and, and reminding them and telling them and speaking over them the truth of who they are in Christ. Uh, and then I'll just mention, uh, I'm really looking forward to, I know you just heard about it, but our lunch on the lawn uh, right after the service here. Uh, my kids will be out there. Uh, my whole family will be there. So we're looking forward to, hope you can join us, even if you haven't been planning on it. Uh, there'll be lunch out there. There'll be games, stuff for the kids. And of course, dunk tanks. Um, I've already written my formal complaint to Pastor Sean, um, and, uh, but here we go. Uh, so that'll be immediately after the service and hope you can join us. So if you have a Bible with you and want to grab that, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15 is we're in the second of three weeks called Three Days That Changed the World. Um, and, and as we jump into our passage this morning, I, I want to acknowledge what for many of us has been a difficult week um, given the events we saw on the news and what happened in Nashville, Tennessee this Monday. You know, events like this tragically happen all over the world and all the time, Um, and sometimes these things tend to hit a little closer to home and and really hit a nerve in ways that other things don't. And there's not always a rhyme or a reason for that. I just know this week, as I've shepherded people here in this church, that that has just been one of those things that's hit so deep for us, that there is a level of depravity and evil that we saw where, where school children would be killed that, that is just difficult for us to stomach, hard for us to think about, hard to put into words, and hard to even articulate. Uh, like as a pastor who talks constantly for a living, this is one of those weeks where I was just without words. Uh, like how do you even process this? How do you think through this? So many of you think of your own kids in school or a small Christian school that you sent your kids. You just think about that and it hits and you realize it's the depth of the wickedness and sin in this world. And one of the things I found myself doing is I was just trying to pray for the situation, pray for the families who are grieving, pray for a community that is just in shock. As I found myself trying to pray, at times I didn't know what things to pray and maybe you're like me in that. There are times you know exactly what to pray, and times the situation just seems like such a mess and such, such a heartache that you don't even know what words to pray. And that brought me to a question I asked even a number of weeks ago here from the stage, and it's this one. What, what do you pray when, when you don't know what to pray for? What, what do you pray when school children are dead? What, what do you pray when something like this hits? And there are moments in our life where something hits and we're not even sure what to pray for, and the beautiful thing for us is that the scriptures are full of prayers, full of offerings of prayers before the Lord that we can pray. And the one I have found most useful in these moments where I don't know what to pray for is one of the final prayers in the Bible, that is Revelation chapter 22, these simple three words, come Lord Jesus. It is the cry of the heart of the global church that Jesus would come, that he would come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and put evil and death and wickedness and sin to bed forever. That he would come and raise the bodies of the saints in the new resurrection and that he would raise this whole world in new creation. This is the blessed hope of the Christian church and this is the cry of our hearts in the worst possible moments where we see things, whether it be in the world or in the news or in our own families, in our own lives, It's come, Lord Jesus. And the beautiful thing about this prayer we pray, come Lord Jesus, is we know exactly what the answer to that prayer is going to be. 
We know what God is going to do in response to that prayer, and the answer is that he's going to come. That is the promise of the New Testament, that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And here's what we see in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, one of my favorite verses in all of scriptures. It says there will come this new heaven and this new earth, and he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is the promise given to us. This is the world that is coming. This is the promise that there's going to be no, not just that there won't be bad things anymore, but that we won't even weep about what happened because God has made all things right. He's restored all things. And yet all of us have experienced in this life, whether it be this Monday or something else going on, the pain of this world. So you've got the pain of this world and the promise that was coming. And here's what I want to recognize this morning, that all of us, that we live in the gap between the pain and the promise. That's where you live. That's where I live. That's where all of us live. The gap between the pain of this world and the promise that there won't be pain anymore, we live in the middle of it. And as we consider Easter weekend, I think it's important for us to consider that gap because you may not have considered this or thought about this, but Easter weekend contains that gap. That same pattern we just saw plays out over those three days. See, Friday was the day of pain. Pastor Sean talked about this last week. It was the day of agony for Jesus as he died on the cross for your sins and mine. It was the day of agony for his disciples as they watched their Savior, this Messiah, get killed and crucified. Friday was the day of pain. And then, of course, next weekend, we will celebrate the triumph, the victory, the resurrection. That Sunday was the day of promise. It is the day of the promised one rising from the dead where that promise is fulfilled for Jesus and that hope is given for us. But right in between Friday, the day of pain, and Sunday, the day of promise, comes Saturday. And Saturday was the gap. It was the gap between the pain and the promise. Saturday was the day where Jesus had died. He had not yet risen, and his disciples had to live through that day. And it's that Saturday that I want to talk to you about today. Now, now I want you to believe me when I tell you I, I grew up in church, been going through church and Easter seasons my entire life, and the fact that it's Palm Sunday, and I'm not going to be talking about Palm Sunday today, bothers me too, okay? So I just want you to know that. But, but, but here's why I'm convinced we need to talk about that Saturday. Because I think over the last few years, many of you have experienced that Saturday in your own life. For some of you, you've gone through a transition, you've lost your job, you've been laid off. For others of you, your business closed, everything just got rattled in the last few years. Some of you went through divorce or some of you went through a relationship breaking down and a strange child or a grandchild, there's something going on in your life that you long for it to be healed and you've gone through the pain but the promised restoration hasn't happened yet and you find yourself right in the middle of it, stuck in that gap, stuck in that Saturday, stuck in that space where the pain has happened but it hasn't been resolved yet. I know for so many of you, that is what you have walked through. And so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna look at that Saturday and I wanna answer this simple question, how do you live by faith in the gap? How do you walk by faith? How do you live and love like Jesus? How do you walk forward day by day by faith in the midst of the gap from the thing you never saw coming, the thing you never expected, the change in your life that just came out of left field and turned everything upside down? How do you live by faith in the gap? So this morning, one of the things that will help us walk through this passage uh, is a devotional by Max Lucado. This devotional is called The Silence of Saturday, and if you want the full devotional, you can scan the QR code on your armrest, you can get a link to it, it'll all be there. 
but I'll read extensively from it this morning. Here's just part of it. He writes these words a number of years ago. He says, Jesus is silent on Saturday. The women have anointed his body and placed it in Joseph's tomb. The cadaver of Christ is as mute as the stone which guards it. He spoke much on Friday. He'll liberate the slaves of death on Sunday. But on Saturday, Jesus is silent. So is God. He made himself heard on Friday. He tore the curtains of the temple and opened the graves of the dead, rocked the earth and blocked the sun of the sky and sacrificed the son of heaven. Earth heard much of, the God, much of God on Friday, nothing on Saturday. Jesus is silent. God is silent. Saturday is silent. Easter weekend discussions tend to skip Saturday. Friday and Sunday get all the press. The crucifixion and the resurrection command our thoughts. But don't ignore Saturdays. You have them too. And because you have them too, because I have them too, because all of us at some point or another live in between the pain and the promise, today we're going to look at Silent Saturday. We're going to look at what it means to have faith in the gap. So again, Mark chapter 15, it'll be on the screens for those of you who don't have a Bible with you. Mark chapter 15, verse 42, it says it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So, so the timeline goes like this. It is Friday afternoon around 3 p.m. when Jesus finally gives his last breath and he dies. And then what it tells us here is that it is the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. And we mentioned last week, I'll mention again, that in the Jewish reckoning, a day does not begin with the sunrise in your cup of coffee. It begins with the sunset. It begins in the evening. So 3 p.m. Jesus dies. The Sabbath day is going to begin at 6 p.m. So when it says it's the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, it is the day they have to get all the work done because work has to cease on the Sabbath. So between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., this story is going to take place, and they need to take Jesus' body off of the cross, prepare him for burial, and get him in the tomb all before 6 o'clock. They are busy dealing with their grief and dealing with the outcome of this crucifixion, and they're in the midst of that pain and that suffering and that angst. And yet... One of the things we have to be aware of in this story is that they were grieving. Meanwhile, everyone around them was celebrating. Some were celebrating the crucifixion of Jesus, but most were celebrating something entirely different. So, see, those of you who know the story of the Bible know that Jesus was crucified at the Passover, the Passover feast, the Passover celebration. The Passover is the celebration of God liberating his people, freeing the slaves from Egypt. And every year, the people of Israel would celebrate. People would pour into Jerusalem and celebrate with meals and family and feasting. And so here's the juxtaposition. You have the disciples of Jesus who are mourning and grieving and going through their loss. And you have the rest of the world celebrating and moving on. Any one of you who have been through a loss know what this is like. You are grieving, you are mourning, you are feeling the heaviness, and yet it feels like the rest of the world has moved on. On Easter or on Christmas or on big celebratory days, the rest of the world is celebrating, and you are still grieving. And that is exactly the space the disciples are in. It's the space many of you have been in. It's the space someone else was in. We've been telling the story over the last couple of weeks of Doug Lehman. Doug Lehman has been on staff here for a number of years as one of our um, leadership team, executive team members here at Calvary. And last week we began to share his story in three parts, the story of his wife getting cancer and eventually dying. And it's the story of how Doug walked through that grief and walked through that transition. And I want you to see in this story how Doug is going through his grief and eventually everyone else moves on and he feels stuck in the gap, stuck in that silent Saturday. Would you take a look at part two? of Doug Lehman's story.
Jan passed away from cancer in 2008. Jan was um, very much a cleaner, and our home was clean and spotless. And on the day that she would do that, the house, house smelled like bleach. I had arrived home one time after I had acquired a cleaning lady to help me out, and the house smelled of bleach. My first thought was, oh, she's home. And then the realization, no, that will never happen again. It sort of slaps you in the face. Those plans of having grandchildren and playing with them and watch them grow up together. Those plans of taking vacation trips, those plans of exploring, those plans of creating together. It wasn't going to be that. After sharing a time of um, outpouring of love from my friends and support from my family, uh, everyone left and went home. At that point, the realization and the disappointment of being alone just hits you. When you arrive home and there's no one there to meet you, to greet you, to care for you, and for a moment you sit in that loneliness, silence, and disappointment, but realize you need to go on because that's the life you have before you now. So grateful for Doug sharing his story. And as he shares, I'm so reminded of the story we're looking at. The disciples have three hours to get everything done. They are focused on their grief and focused on the death of Jesus. And yet everyone else is celebrating and gathering. They have moved on to something else. And yet Doug says something profound at the end of the video. He says, you realize that you need to go on because this is the, this, that's the life you have before you now. See, see what Doug understands is that his wife passes and, and people have moved on and it's not that he needs to ignore his pain or move through it quickly as much as Doug realizes that now he has a life before him that he didn't plan that he didn't expect something has hit him something has changed in his life and he finds himself in that gap he finds himself in that silent Saturday he finds himself in the unexpected place that he did not anticipate being in and he asks, how do I move on? And that's what I want to talk about this morning, how we walk by faith, how we move on. I want to talk this morning about four ways we walk by faith in the gap. Again, if you're living in a transition, in a gap, in a moment you didn't expect, in between the pain and the promise, if you're living in the midst of something that seemed to come out of left field and flip everything upside down, may I offer you from this story four ways we walk by faith in the gap. Verse 42 says, so as evening approaches, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate to ask and ask for Jesus's body. So we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea and he's a prominent member of the council, but what does it tell us about him? It's that he is a person who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Waiting for the kingdom of God is this theme we see all throughout the scripture, that people are waiting on the Lord, waiting on God, certain that he's going to fulfill his promise, certain that he's going to come through in the way he said he was, and yet he hasn't done that yet. And so all throughout the Bible, we actually see this theme from Joseph of Arimathea, that there's this waiting on the Lord, waiting on God. In fact, Psalm chapter 27, 14 says this, it says, wait on the Lord, be strong and take heart, wait for the Lord. And it's this theme of waiting on the Lord that I want to begin with this morning because I'm convinced waiting on the Lord is one of those profoundly misunderstood commands in the scripture. See, most people think about waiting on the Lord and they think about it kind of like waiting on a bus at a bus stop. 
You, you just kind of like roll up and then the bus isn't there. And so you just sit and wait and do nothing, maybe be on your phone. And then the bus comes up and then you get up, you get on the bus and it takes you where you want to go. And most people think waiting on the Lord is that kind of waiting. A passive kind of waiting where God's going to show up. So in the meantime, we can just kind of hang out, do nothing and sit back. And yet that's not what we see in this story. I want to bring you back to verse 43 and show you what Joseph does. Again, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. What does he do? It doesn't say he sat around and did nothing. It doesn't say he just went for a long walk and thought about things. It says he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. In other words, for Joseph of Arimathea, it's not that he just sat around hoping God would do something. He is waiting for the kingdom of God, and yet he boldly goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body. See, I think what Joseph of Arimathea is teaching us here and what we see all throughout the scriptures when people are commanded to wait on the Lord is that waiting on the Lord is not passively longing for what comes next. Waiting on the Lord is not passively longing for what comes next. So, so one of my roles here at the church, I work with a lot of young people, college students, young adults. Um, and, and for a lot of college students and young adults, this idea of waiting on the Lord uh, is kind of their favorite and least favorite passage. Uh, and the reason is because everything in their life is ahead of them. Like who they're going to marry, where they're going to live or settle down, what their career is going to be. They just look out at their life and go, okay, this hasn't happened yet. And yet I want it to happen. And so there's this longing for this to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so they hear waiting on the Lord. And for so many of them, wait on the Lord means I'm single. I would like to be married. And so I'll do nothing and just hope the right woman just appears in front of me. And that's what waiting on the Lord means. But here's what I'm convinced of. Like the waiting on the Lord is not just this kind of like passively longing, hoping something happens and doing nothing. Instead, it's this waiting on the Lord is actively engaging the assignment now. The assignment that is in front of you. To wait on the Lord is not just to sit back and hope things get better and hope God shows up and clears up the situation. Waiting on the Lord means I know God is going to come through, but right now there are things in front of me I need to take care of. Right now there are things God has assigned me to do. And I'm going to do it. I, I like to think of it this way. So back in the fall, uh, my family went out to Thanksgiving um, in Nashville, Tennessee, with um, my, my wife's sister who lives out there. And so we flew out there with our three kids, had a wonderful week. We were flying back. And, and here's what any of you who have kids or grandkids know when it comes to flying. They're kind of... Uh, two extremes. There's like the little, little kids when they're like infants, right? Those are great on airplanes because they just sleep in your arms. You have a bottle. It's just easy peasy. And then there's like an age they get to where you can hand them an iPad and, and they're just set. They're like, I just get to eat snacks and watch my shows the whole time. This is brilliant. But then here's what you parents know. You know this. Between like six months and a year, it is the worst possible time to fly with a child. Like there are a few things worse than that because they can't really sit and watch a show. They're antsy. They want to move around, but they can't quite do it. It's terrible. And so we're flying back with a nine-month-old, right? Uh, and my, my other two children, my older two, they're fine. They got their iPads. They're watching their shows. They could have done a 20-hour flight. They didn't care. They were happy, right? And so I'm sitting with them on the airplane, and then my wife across the aisle is sitting with my nine-month-old in the lap. And right next to her in the two seats are two people who drew, like, the most unfortunate two seats on the airplane, right? Like, they're right next to my wife, and, and they're just sitting there on, on the seats. And it's like, well, man, like, if you could pick anywhere on an airplane to sit, you'd probably prefer, like, underneath with the baggage, right? Like, that's where they're sitting, and so they're there. And here's what they could have done, and I just will never forget these folks. What they could have done is just put on noise canceling headphones, 
looked down at their phones, watched a show, and just endured the fact that there was a nine-month-old who couldn't pull it together next to them. They could have done that, and nobody would have blamed them. But that's not what they did. Like, the thing I noticed over and over in the flight is they kept, like, entertaining my nine-month-old. They kept, like, jingling keys or playing peekaboo or laughing or smiling or encouraging my wife. I'll never forget watching them during this four or five-hour flight when they could have just said, I'll just sit here and wait for this thing to be over and move on with my life. Instead, they said, we're stuck here anyway, and we might as well bless and encourage this family. And when I think about waiting on the Lord, I think about those folks. I think that they didn't just sit back passively and go, we'll just get through this time. They said, how can I be a blessing during this time? I have to wait anyway, so I might as well be faithful with what's in front of me. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not just sitting around hoping things get better. It's saying, how can I be faithful now? We're talking this morning about four ways we walk by faith in the gap. Here's the first one. We look down at your current assignment. Why do I say you look down? Because what we want to do when life gets turned upside down and everything changes and things come in out of nowhere is we want to look everywhere else. We want to blame someone. We want to look for all the answers. We want to figure out what's next. We want to set our eyes everywhere. You know what I believe our God calls us to do is look down at the very next assignment in front of us. Who has God given us? If you're in the gap right now, do you have children or grandchildren? Love them. Do you have a job that you can just be passionate about? Pour yourself into it. Do you have a ministry, a small group, or something you lead here at the church or in our community? Be passionate about that. Set your eyes on the current assignment as you wait on the Lord. That's what it looks like. See, here's what I've learned, that waiting on the Lord often means doing the next right thing. Just whatever the next right thing is. For Joseph of Arimathea, it was going boldly to Pilate and asking for the body. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't even know Jesus would rise from the dead. He just knew I needed to do the next right thing in the midst of this grief. And that's what we're called to do. It goes on this way in Mark chapter 15 and verse 44. It says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. So Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead because in the Roman world, sometimes crucifixions took days. And that's hard for us to get our head around, but crucifixion was this humiliating and excruciating way to die. And for Jesus, he dies after a few hours, and it says Pilate was surprised. Pilate didn't get it. How could Jesus possibly already be dead? But what Pilate didn't understand is that God already had a plan for Jesus. The plan was he would be in the grave three days and rise on Sunday. And so God knew the timeline and God knew exactly when Jesus was going to die. And what's true for Pilate is true for you and me. What is a surprise to you is not a surprise to God. Like whatever happened... That thing that threw your world into turmoil, that thing that turned your whole life upside down, the thing you never saw coming, the thing that has shocked you, is not a surprise to God. He wasn't up in heaven and he was told about your circumstance and went, excuse me, what? God is never surprised. His foreknowledge, his wisdom, he knows everything that's happening. Like, I want to just get into the granular detail of that. Like, I want you to know God knows what was going to happen to you. He knew. He knew what was coming. He knew what it was going to be. I want you to know God knew when it was going to happen to you. He knew it wouldn't be 10 years ago, and he knew it wouldn't be 10 years from now. He knew it would be in this season. God knew where it was going to happen to you. God knew where you would be living and who you would be surrounded with and the people you'd have in your church and the people you'd have in your life. And God knew why it would happen to Jesus. Right? God knew why what would happen to Jesus would happen to him. Like all the things about Jesus' life, all the things that happened to him, God already knew what was going to happen. Like God knew what was going to happen. 
God knew why it was going to happen. And then here's the most important part about it, is that God knew how what would happen to Jesus, God knew how that would work for Jesus' good and God's glory. God already knew what was going to happen. And we think about the story of Jesus. We think about the crucifixion. We need to know this wasn't a surprise to God. This didn't shock him. This didn't throw him. This didn't throw him off balance. God knew exactly what was going to happen. And he knew how he would work it for your good, for Jesus' good, and for his glory. And so when I look to Easter weekend, when I look to the death and resurrection of Jesus... I need to have that same kind of confidence that what God knew about what was going on in Jesus, God also knows what's going on for me. Like, may I say it this way to you this morning? God knew what was going to happen to you. God knew when it was going to happen and where it was going to happen. God knew why it was going to happen. People ask me all the time in their pain, why would God allow this to happen to me? And my answer is always, I don't know because I'm not God. All I can know is what he's revealed to me in his will and his word. And what he said is that he works all things for the good of those who love him. So like in other words, God knows everything about what happened to you. The thing that shocked you and surprised you and threw you off kilter. God knew it was going to happen. But before it ever happened, God knew how it worked for your good and for his glory. This is what we have confidence in. Sometimes people want to kind of excuse God and say, well, he didn't know, or he wasn't in control, or or he had no power over the situation, and they try to let God off the hook, but that gives me no comfort. The idea that the world in my life is just spinning out of control and God can't do anything about it brings me zero comfort. What brings me comfort is that God knew exactly what was going to happen, and he is guiding and leading us all through that. That's what gives me comfort in the midst of it. See, four ways we walk by faith in the gap. The first is we look down and be faithful of what's in front of us. The second is we look up to the wisdom of God. We trust the wisdom of God. We believe that God is doing what he's doing for a reason, even in our pain, even in our discomfort, even in the shock and surprise of what happened. Like this last week, I was thinking about this because we had to take our two youngest in uh, to the doctor for their annual checkups. And again, parents, you'll know this, that the the worst part of the annual checkup is the annual shot, right? Uh, And that's just a part of the experience. The needle comes out. You know what's going to happen. They know what's going to happen. The doctor knows. Everyone knows what's going to happen, right? And it comes and it's not pleasant and it's not fun. But, But then the thing that is so important to grasp here is that we elect for our children to go through this pain. We choose it. We could just say, no, we don't want them to go through this pain. No, nothing. Don't, no, don't give them any medicine, nothing at all. We could choose that route, but we elect for them to go through this pain. And the reason we do so isn't because we hate our children. It's because we love them. It's because we're for them. It's because we know this will ultimately be for their good. They don't know that. They don't get that at their age, but we do because that's the wisdom of parenting. And the wisdom of God is that God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. This season where everything's gotten topsy-turvy and you're not sure which way is up and you're not sure which way to go, God knows exactly what he's doing. Again, Max Lucado says these words. He talks about Silent Saturdays, the day between the struggle and the solution, the question and the answer, the offered prayer and the answer thereof. Saturday's silent torments us. Is God angry? Did I disappoint him? God knows that Jesus is in the tomb, so why doesn't he do something? Or in your case, God knows your career is in the tank, your finances are in the pit, your marriage is a mess, so why doesn't he act? What are you supposed to do until he does? You do what Jesus did. You lay still, stay silent, trust God. Jesus died with this conviction. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. 
And child of God, that same promise holds for you. Whatever you're going through, whatever has happened, whatever has turned your world upside down, the God of the universe has not left you, he has not abandoned you, he has not forsaken you, and he never will. He is with you, he is for you, he is on your side, and he is shepherding you through this season. In verse 45, we see this, when he, this being Pilate, learned that from the centurion that it was so, that Jesus had died, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen and took down the body and wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the morning on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you heard me read that last verse. You're like, no, 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 Brian, that's Sunday. You've jumped ahead. You're cheating right now. I get it, but here's what I want you to know. It might be Sunday, but the experience of these women is one of Saturday. These women are not going to the tomb because they'd like to see the empty tomb and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are going to the tomb because they believe they need to anoint a dead body. They believe they need to take care of the corpse of Jesus. They are going to the tomb on Sunday, but they are still living in the mindset of Saturday. And, and yet the beautiful thing that they are not aware of in this moment is that God has already acted decisively and finally on their behalf. Jesus has already risen from the dead. They just don't have the eyes to see it yet. God has already moved powerfully for their salvation. He has conquered sin and death and hell. They just don't see it yet. And to me, this is a profound encouragement when I find myself in this gap, this in-between silent Saturday kind of season. That for these women, God has already acted decisively. They just don't have the eyes to see it yet. And so here's what it reminds me, at least three things, when I'm in the angst and the pain and the suffering of these seasons where it doesn't seem like God's answering. Number one is this, in the silence, we should never assume that God has not heard us. So often we assume, well, it's silent and then we're in the midst of this, so it probably God hasn't heard our prayers. He's too busy with other things. My concerns aren't that important to him. My internet connection to him has gone down. I don't know what the issue is, but somehow he's not hearing me. We think that. Number two, in the silence, we should not assume that God has not cared for us. See, for some of you, you go, I think God hears my prayers. He just doesn't care about me. I've sinned too much. I've been too lousy at faith. I've not been that great. And so he's just abandoned me and doesn't care about me. And then finally, in the silence, we should never assume that God has not acted on our behalf already. And this is the beautiful thing about this story. They don't realize it, but God has already moved. Jesus is already alive. And they just haven't had the eyes to see it yet. And so for me, in the midst of this gap, what I want to do is have the kind of faith that says, I'm going to trust that God has moved, even if I don't have the eyes to see it yet. So, so one of the things I've shared over the years, uh, one of the journeys in my own life, um, and, and for me, one of the heavier journeys that I've just prayed and called out to the Lord on, um, I've shared with many of you uh, about a brother of mine named Stephen. So I have three brothers. Stephen's two years younger than me. Um, and Stephen um, is a brother who is estranged from our family, uh, and estranged from our God. Uh, it's been over five years since I've talked to him. And, and I want you to know I've, I've prayed for him. I've asked others to pray for him. People have even come up to me saying, I'm praying for your brother. Any change? I go, no. And, and I'm going to keep praying. It's beautiful. I fasted for days on end on his behalf. I have sought the Lord. I have cried out for him. And I find myself right in the midst of that gap. Nothing. And yet as I continue to call out for my brother, 
for his salvation, for his reconciliation with our family, for all the things going on in Stephen's life. As I call out to him, here's the kind of faith I want to have. I want to assume that just because the situation doesn't change doesn't mean God hasn't heard me. The God of the universe has heard my prayer. He's heard my cry. He knows what I'm saying to him. I don't want to assume he hasn't cared for me. I don't want to assume he hasn't gone, forget Brian and forget the Howard family and forget Stephen. I don't really care about them. No, God cares about all of us. And then I don't want to assume God hasn't acted on my behalf. I don't want to assume God hasn't moved powerfully in his life. What if it's the case that God has already positioned someone in his life who's going to help bring him back to the Lord and bring him back to my family? Like, I want to pray with that kind of faith. Not because I've seen it. I haven't. This isn't like a wonderful pastor story where at the end of the sermon, I'm going to tell you, guess what? Everything's better. It's not. But I want to tell you that I want to pray with this kind of faith. Why? Because Easter Saturday reminds us that while we are waiting, our God is working. While you are in this season of transition and waiting and everything seems wrong, God is working right in the midst of it. This is the Easter story. So we talk about four ways we walk by faith in the gap. Number one, we look down at our current assignment. How can I be faithful now? Now, number two, we're going to look up at the wisdom of God and trust him in what he's doing in our lives. Number three, we're going to look around for the hand of God and see that God has already been moving powerfully. God has not abandoned us. He's not forgotten about us. Again, Max Lucado says this, Jesus knew God would not leave him in the grave. And you need to know God will not leave you alone in your struggles. His silence is not his absence. His inactivity is never apathy. Saturdays have their purpose. They let us feel the full force of God's strength. Had God raised Jesus 15 minutes after the death of his son, would we have appreciated the act? Were you to solve your problems the second they appear, would you appreciate his strength? For his reasons, God inserts a Saturday between our Fridays and Sundays. If today is one for you, be patient. And as one who endured the silent Saturday wrote, be patient, brethren, until the coming of our Lord. Be patient in it and know that our God is working. Here's the final verse we'll look at this morning in verse 3. It says, and they asked each other, this is the women, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? So again, they're going to the tomb thinking they're anointing and they're taking care of a dead body. And their big concern as they walk up to the tomb is not the theological implications of a resurrection they didn't know happened yet. Their big concern is a more practical one, an immediate one. Who's going to move the stone away from the tomb? Now this week I was thinking about that stone and wondering what it might look like. And growing up in church, I always thought the stone looked a lot like this. And um, archaeologists tell us that is indeed, no, what the stone could have looked like. And, and, and the stone for me, like it could have been just like this, could have been something like this, it could have been round. That was what it was on all the coloring sheets and all the flannel graphs. So to me, like that's what it's locked in as. But then I was reading this week and reading through like archaeologists said, ah, that's what like richer people would have had or famous people. Maybe Jesus had that, but it seems like a borrowed tomb. So maybe it was actually more like this, which is more like the plug up the tomb with just a like kind of awkward rock and just kind of shove it in there. And there are like thousands of pages of debate on this. And I want you to know my conclusion. My conclusion after reading all of this is that I don't care. Um, I, I, I do not. The important thing is not the shape of the rock. The important thing is that there was a rock in front of the tomb. And the women looked at the rock and said, there's nothing we can do about this rock. The women looked at the rock and said, this rock is in our way. This rock is there. It's stuck. We can't roll it, move it, shake it. There's nothing we can do about it. See, the women understood intuitively what all of you understand, that stones are big and stones are heavy and stones are permanent. They sit there and they cannot be moved. And as they're walking to the tomb, their focus is on this obstacle. Their focus is on this thing that sits in front of them. And what they don't realize is that God has already moved decisively on their behalf. So it is not on their strength that the rock is moved, but rather on the strength of their God. 
See, to your God and to mine, to God, stones are small, stones are light, stones are temporary. God can move the stone in this story and God can move the rock in your life. He can move the thing you think is so immovable, so unchangeable, it'll never change. The relationship that'll never get healed, the thing that'll never get fixed, the thing that's going on that'll never get better. Our God is able to move stones. Our God is able to move in your life. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to walk away with the faith and confidence in a God who can move and will move powerfully on your behalf. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Remember for Paul, the issue isn't that pain doesn't matter, or sufferings doesn't matter, or it's nothing, or you should forget about it. The issue for Paul isn't that suffering is irrelevant. It's that suffering is worth it. Notice he says that there's an eternal glory that outweighs everything. Like in the end, we'll see it was all worth it. And so in verse 18, it says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So, so what does Paul tell us to do? Well, well Paul's going to tell us we don't fix our eyes on what is temporary, on what we can see. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. These women are walking to the tomb, and what they can think about is a rock, and that's natural. Because that's what's in front of them, that's the obstacle. But Paul is trying to lift our eyes to heaven. And it gives us the fourth and final way we walk by faith in the gap. Number one, we look down. How can I be faithful with what's in front of me? Number two, I look up. How can I trust the wisdom of God? Number three, I'm looking around to see how God has already moved. And finally, I want to look upon the resurrected and returning Jesus. I want to look upon the resurrected and returning Jesus. Is when I look to Jesus, when I set my eyes and fix my eyes on him, that is when I am filled with the confidence and faith to move through these gaps, these silent Saturdays, these moments and seasons where my life seems turned upside down. We do what the author of Hebrews said when he says we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, and the finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners that we might not grow weary and lose heart. That is what we do, church. We set our eyes on Jesus, Jesus the resurrected one. That's what we'll do next weekend. This is a week packed with activity where you can join us Thursday night, 7 p.m. to Friday, 7 p.m. for our 24 hours of prayer. You can join me. I'll be in there for some of those hours just praying, seeking the Lord for my own heart, my family, my church, my world. You can join us for the journey to the cross on Friday afternoon. Certainly our Good Friday service, I'll be preaching that here on, on Friday night, and I encourage you to be here. And then, of course, our five Easter services coming up this weekend where we'll set our eyes on Jesus, the resurrected King that fills us with hope and confidence for the future. Now, now we try to say this every year, um, and we try to talk about the different services we have. If you are interested in being at the service where, where parking is really hard to come by and you might, might, might get a seat, definitely come to this one, the 11 a.m., <laughs> uh, but if you are looking for perhaps like better parking or more space or anything like that, we encourage you to try our Saturday night services, Sunday morning services. Nine and 11 are always our most full. And if that's what works for you, by all means be here. Uh, but if you're able to shift to one of those other ones, that creates a better experience and more space uh, for people who are our guests. And so encourage you to be here next week and encourage you to invite someone with you. Uh, just this last week, I was in a store here and someone invites someone to a service here at Calvary. And it was so simple, non-threatening conference. Just, hey, why don't you join me for Easter? I, I encourage you to do that this week. We're going to set our eyes on the resurrected Jesus. But then it is not just that he's the resurrected one. Part of our hope in the midst of this gap is that he's the returning one.
that he is coming back in glory to judge the living and the dead. See, for me, over the last couple of months and really the last year or so, uh, the idea of Jesus' return has moved from like a theological concept I've believed to something that is just like right in my heart, something I desire, something I long for, something I love, that I would love his appearing. And here's the reason for that. As our world has gotten more chaotic and more dark, as wickedness has just reared its ugly head, here's what you realize. That cultural renewal in the United States of America would be awesome. That revival in the church would be amazing. That politics changing and shifting would be great. But all of those things are at best temporary. None of those are the final solution. None of those are the final thing that will bring the wickedness and evil and all of the pain and sin and suffering in this world to end. None of those things are the final thing. The final thing. The unique, climactic, and decisive end to human history and the end to wickedness and evil will be the return of Jesus in glory to judge the living and the dead. Every eye will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's coming. That's what's the hope of the church. And that's why we talk about this. So when we say in Matthew 28, yeah, that we say this, that we say in Matthew 28 that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. This is not just a verse about some theological, eschatological thing happening at the end. This is something that gives us hope right here in the midst of it. It is something that gives us hope right in the midst of the transitions of the times life seems upside down. The the, the coming of Jesus gives us hope when we're in the gap in these silent Saturdays because we know, we know there's going to come a day where Jesus returns to make all things right. And that gives us an anchor for our hope that cannot be moved and cannot be shaken I encourage you on your way out today as you're walking out into the lobby to just look up once again at those skylights. You'll see here on the skylight, it's actually not the verse from Matthew, it's the verse from Luke, but same words from Jesus, talking about the Son of Man coming in power. Snap a picture, remember this in the lobby. Every time you look to that, remember that Jesus is coming again, and that is the blessed hope of the church. Uh, As we were talking with Doug Lehman about his story, that we've been sharing over the last couple days, uh, we talked to him about um, some of the things that sustained him through the loss of his wife. Last week, we talked about that song or sang that song, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, and that was a beautiful blessing to him. Another song that really lifted him that we'll sing in just a moment here, our band will make their way out, uh, is a song uh, by Sandy Patty called We Shall Behold Him. And Doug said this, he said that one of the reasons this song was so important and powerful to him was that um, his mom would have this song playing constantly in his household or in her house, and he'd hear it all the time, which is a great remember to us to who are parents or grandparents, uh, that the soundtrack of our home will make its way into your children's hearts and minds, that as we play worship music throughout the day, they hear that, and it just gets planted in their little hearts. But Doug said as his wife passed, this was something that meant a great deal to him as he considered the second coming of Jesus, that his hope was ultimately that Christ would return again, that she would be raised, that he would be raised, and all things would be made new. I invite you as you hear this song right now, this song, We Shall Behold Him. Um, If you are going through a season of the gap, of a transition, of a silent Saturday, your life has been turned upside down, would you take heart and comfort in this same song that Doug took heart and comfort in? And if you're not in one of those seasons right now, praise God. But I just guarantee you, within 10 feet of you, there is someone who is going through that right now. So would you spend this song praying for someone around you and seeking the Lord and believing for the day when we will see him face to face.